but if you recall, uh, we looked at lesson uh, 13 last week, last Wednesday. We were in John chapter 2. And we were looking at uh, a couple of different things. Uh, we were looking at the first uh, disciples that, uh, that Jesus called. And then also we looked at the first uh, miracle of Jesus that's recorded in Scripture. And so if you remember, we, we kind of uh, are moving away from John the Baptist. You know, a lot of John chapter 1 and John chapter 2 have to deal with John the Baptist and his ministry and we're starting to see him uh, decrease, and again, Jesus and his ministry increase. And Brother Eddie has uh, the handout for uh, the next section of lessons. Uh, I think this is 14 through uh, the next couple, 14 through 17. So he's handing those out right now, and that's. <laughs> but that's good because we're in lesson 14. But we're going to uh, finish up what we uh, talked about last Wednesday in lesson 13. But again, John the Baptist, he's, his ministry we see is decreasing. Jesus is, is increasing. But remember, uh, they, they come to John the Baptist and they, they want to know who he is. Uh, right? They say, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Uh, are you the prophet? You know, who are you? And John has to explain to them that, no, he's not the Christ. No, he's not uh, Elijah. He, he's not the prophet. Uh, I'm just the forerunner. I'm just this guy that's paving the way, getting everything ready for Jesus to, to come and begin his ministry. And, and again, John's starting to fade uh, from uh, the gospel accounts. And then we looked at Jesus, uh, his ministry beginning, his uh, calling the first of his disciples. If we recall, uh, Andrew, uh, the apostle Andrew is the first one John mentions, and he's with an unknown a disciple who a lot of uh, scholars believe was John the Apostle. John just didn't want to mention his name there, and so he, he left his name out. But Andrew is one of the first uh, that uh, Jesus calls, and Andrew, uh, he's excited, and so he goes and gets his brother Cephas, uh, better known as Peter. Right? And so he goes and gets Peter. And, uh, and they start following Jesus. Uh, they're now disciples of Jesus. And then, and then uh, Jesus also, the next day, he picks up another uh, disciple by the name of Philip. And then Philip, he does the same thing. He goes and finds another person by the name of uh, Nathaniel. Or, uh, again, as we kind of touched on, this could possibly be the apostle Bartholomew. Uh, but John refers to him as Nathaniel. And, uh, and then they're following him. So he has five disciples here by John chapter 2. And again, if they are who we, uh, you know, we kind of mentioned who they were, it's significant because, you know, these are going to be uh, five of the apostles, of the 12 apostles. If this truly was uh, Andrew and Peter, uh, Philip and Bartholomew and John. And so Jesus picks them up. And then we moved into John chapter uh, 2, uh, where we see the recording of the first uh, miracle that Jesus performs at the, the wedding uh, in Cana uh, of Galilee. Again, if we want to refer to uh, the map, you know, Cana is up in this uh, area here. I don't think it's, well, it's over here on this uh, blown up section of Galilee uh, again, that's one of those places that is so small, we don't really maybe exactly know where it is because, you know, the Bible, again, refers to it uh, as Cana of Galilee. 
letting us know that it's in Galilee. It's just, it's one of these small places. And so uh, Jesus is there. And why don't we go ahead and refresh ourselves and read these verses again. Uh, John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servant who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Uh, After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Okay, and so I think a lot of us are familiar with this this account of of this wedding feast that takes place. And again, uh, weddings in our culture... You know, the last a couple of hours, you know, we, we see the bride and groom go through the, the traditional, you know, customs and, and, they, and then they go off uh, to their honeymoon. But, you know, weddings in this culture in this day uh, were nothing like that. Right. They could have lasted uh, up to a week of just, you know, of this long celebration. And so, of course, uh, the, the wine runs out, and this is, would have been uh, embarrassing because, you know, you're providing for all of these people who have been invited. And Mary uh, looks at Jesus, and she asks him to do something. You know, this is, this is kind of interesting, but, you know, what do we think she was uh, wanting him to do? You know, at this point in Jesus' life, uh, as far as the scriptures reveal, you know, we haven't seen any... Miracles performed by Jesus. You know, does Mary know, uh, or do we at least think that Mary uh, knows that that Jesus could do something about this miraculously, or is she just telling Jesus to take care of the situation? I think she knows because she's seen so much and we've been visited by angels and everything else. She don't maybe know what he's going to do, but she knows he can take care of it miraculously. Yeah, yeah that, that's likely likely the case that uh, she knows something. She knows that he can do something, and she puts him in charge. And you know, of course, Jesus's response in verse four. You know, woman, what does that have to do with us? Uh, you know, probably in today's culture, uh, you know, it would be disrespectful for uh, children to refer to their mother as woman. Right? I don't think we would take too kind to you know, one of our children referring to our mother that, or to their mother that way. But in this, again, in this culture, uh, this wasn't a bad thing. He's not insulting her by referring to her as woman. Uh, I think maybe in your packets uh, uh, talked about this, how this was an acknowledgement of respect. It was a term of, of tenderness that Jesus is 
Again, referring to his, his mother by, by woman. Woman, what does this have to do with us? Um, you know, and some even suggest that, you know, this is sort of where Jesus is, uh, you know, breaking, uh, you know, familial t- ties. Uh, that, that he's now separating himself from his mother, so to speak, by, you know, my ministry is beginning. And now I'm about my father's work. And so uh, he didn't refer to her as mother, but woman here. You know, uh, some think that that might be the case as to why uh, he uh, referred to her as woman. But he says, you know, uh, what is this about us? You know, my hour has not yet come. Right? He's starting to focus uh, his attention to uh, the father's business, right? uh, the, his father's uh, business. Uh, my, my hour has not yet come. And so, uh, but, but we do notice that he does something about it, right? He, he does something. He, uh, he has these six water pots uh, that are uh, apparently empty. Uh, these were used for uh, purification purposes. Uh, the Bible actually told us that they were anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons. You know, uh, you know if you remember Oscar the Grouch, you remember the garbage can that, you know, he sort of uh, lived in, you know, that that's... Kind of what I imagine, you know, a 30 gallon, um, you know, pot of water would hold uh, something uh, to that effect. So uh, these were for ceremonial cleaning, uh, not necessarily for holding uh, a liquid to uh, drink from. But he has them fill six of these with water and he miraculously changes it to wine. Right. And the head waiter, he's amazed at this. Jesus performs this first miracle, which uh, actually John doesn't tell us this is a miracle. But in verse 11, he says this is the beginning of his signs. Uh, This is one of the signs that Jesus performed. And uh, throughout the book of John, uh, there are seven signs uh, that he does. And uh, again, uh, that John focuses and this is the first of the seven. And again, you know, what is the purpose of a miracle or a sign. All right, it's to prove who Christ is. It's to confirm His word. Uh, you know, again, uh, whenever we see a miracle being performed uh, in the New Testament, it's never to you know showboat or to you know prove that you can do something, but it's always to confirm what's being spoken. And so, you know, that's the account of John chapter two of the wedding of Cana of Galilee. And again, the main focus is you know that this uh, this was uh, Jesus's power first uh, in. Uh, being, uh, you know, demonstrated, showcased for us. But I did mention that we kind of left on this point last uh, Wednesday is that uh, this section of scripture a lot of times is uh, where uh, people want to debate, you know, as to whether, you know, this wine that Jesus uh, miraculously created, uh, you know, was it grape juice or, you know, was it something of alcoholic um, content? You know, it, because some will argue, you know, if Jesus was at this wedding and he um, created, you know, an alcoholic, um, you know, uh, a fermented type of wine that, you know, it must be OK. You know, and we see this within uh, culture as well. Do you, do you 
uh, you know, country music fans, you know who Miranda Lambert is. Uh, she has a, a song called Heart Like Mine. I mean, maybe that's a song you're, uh, that you, well, I can't recall uh, all the lyrics off the top of my head, but uh, there's a, a verse in that song where she says, you know, because I heard Jesus, he drank wine, and I bet we'd get along just fine, right? And that's where the world, uh, you know, takes, you know, this verse here, these verses here in John chapter 2 and say, you know, it's okay, right? Jesus created wine, and he obviously must have drank some, and so uh, that must be fine. But again, you know, we need to focus in on uh, a couple of things. I just want to mention these before we move on into the next lesson. You know, three significant arguments uh, that we have to answer. And again, uh, these come from uh, the packet as well. And the first thing we want to notice is uh, in the Greek, the word that's often translated wine, uh, this Greek word uh, oinos, it can mean either uh, non-alcoholic or alcoholic wine. Again, it can mean grape juice or it can mean uh, what we refer to as wine. And so, you know, we have to use the context of the situation to determine uh, what it is. Uh, for example, I'll give you a couple of scriptures in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter uh, 16, verse 10. Isaiah writes this. He says, gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field. In the vineyards also there will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting, no tender tread, or excuse me, no treader treads out wine in the presses, for I have made the shouting to cease. And so Isaiah here uses this uh, word uh, oinos, again, uh, that we often translate it wine, but from the context in this verse, we can tell that this is uh, grape juice. This is uh, referring to uh, juice that has just come out of the vine. Uh, he does this as well in Isaiah chapter 65. Just another example in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 8. This one's a little bit clearer. It says, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. Again, we, we understand that uh, wine within the... Uh, or excuse me, wine or grape juice within uh, the grape itself, within the cluster of the grape, uh, that has not gone through the, you know, the process of fermentation. This is simply grape juice. Again, this is that Greek word, uh, oinos. But again, uh, again, the context helps determine uh, as if this is, again, uh, if this is grape juice or if this is wine. Let me give you an example on the, other, the flip side of this. Proverbs chapter 20, uh, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Uh, from the context of that verse, you know, we understand that the word there for wine is referring to alcoholic wine, right? Uh, because it's a strong drink. Uh, it, whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. So again, we need the, the first thing we need to do when we come uh, to passages like these is to uh, determine by the context. Uh, you know, again, if he's talking about fermented or unfermented uh, grape juice. Uh, the second thing we should probably note in, in verse 10, uh, again, where it says, every man serves the good wine first. You know, what, what does he mean about uh, the good wine? 
good by our standards doesn't necessarily mean good by their standards. Okay, uh, some believe that new wine, uh, the, fresh from the grape, you know, grape juice, again, that's good. Right, that's uh, that's new. That that's good. Um, we know people in that time period often boiled grape juice so that no fermentation process could ever take place. We know that they were uh, sometimes extra careful where they would um, they would mix uh, you know two parts water uh, within the grape juice just to again make sure that the what uh, they were going to be serving was not going to be anything. Uh, intoxicating. So again, you know, what does he refer to as good wine? You know, and again, a lot of commentators point to this being uh, good grape juice, right? It's good. It's new. It's right from the vine. It's right from the grape. And then the third thing we can notice is that, again, from the context is, again, in verse 10, it tells us that uh, they, the people have uh, drunk freely, uh, uh, that this is a uh, you know, sort of referring to that they had been, you know, eating and drinking uh, all day long. Okay, and so if that was the, uh, if that's the context of the situation, uh, that they had been doing this uh, all day long, what, what would that say about Jesus's actions here? If, if Jesus turned water into uh, intoxicating wine. You know what? What would that say about Jesus's actions? Sorry. He would been an accessory to their sin. Right. Exactly. Yes. And, and so, you know, again, based on the context here, you know, uh, we, we can, you know, verify here that. You know, Jesus, uh, you know, based on these three, these three things. And I don't know, is there, uh, does anyone else have something that they thought of as to, uh, as to, you know, the, the, what uh, could be here in this context of um, fermented versus unfermented wine? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, at least those three points uh, that we can determine, again, that, that Jesus would be complicit in their drunkenness, right? If he was, t- if they had been drinking freely all day long and then he provided them with even more, uh, again, alcoholic, uh, fermented uh, wine for them to uh, continue to partake in, that he would be contributing to uh, that uh, that type of thing, right? And we all know, and we're all very familiar with the scriptures that tell us that, um, you know, drunkenness is uh, sinful and that those who practice it will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so, uh, again, as Mike pointed out, you know, that, that would be um, him contributing to that. And so, again, based on this context, you know, Jesus is uh, turning uh, water into grape juice. He, he's uh, giving them uh, more grape juice to serve at this wedding feast. Because again, you know, we're talking about the first century. They don't have these soda machines, you know, like you go into Wendy's and you can choose, uh, you know, like a hundred different flavors and add-ons and stuff like that. I mean, they really only have one choice 
when it comes to something other than water, right? And that's the grape juice. That's the fruit of the vine. And so uh, it was very important in their day, and they understood uh, the potency of it. They understood uh, that if they boiled it down, that they could uh, prevent it from being fermented. They understood that if they mixed it with more water, that the potency, again, would not be there as well. So, again, we spent a lot of time talking about this. But, again, the, the point is that we want to make is that Jesus manifested his glory by this first sign that we see in John chapter 2. And that's the point of this whole story. And we want to, again, focus in on that. So verse 12, as we continue on, tells us that Jesus went down from Capernaum. So again, he's here in Cana and he's going this way to Capernaum. Now that looks sort of like he's going north, right? But again, the Bible says he, he's going down to uh, Capernaum. Uh, but again, when, we, when the Bible is speaking about this, it's not speaking directional, but it's uh, speaking in um, you know, elevation. I, I, I tried to find a good map that would show sort of the elevation of Palestine. I know it's pretty blurry. Uh, it's not a good one. Uh, but we can uh, hopefully you can at least see uh, Cap you know, Capernaum again is here right on the north of the Sea of Galilee. And Jerusalem is going to be down here. Uh, again, you probably can't see that, but you can see that Jerusalem is on this mountain range. It's d this darker brown color. Uh, it's got a higher elevation. A matter of fact, it's, uh, well, Capern yes, Jerusalem is uh, 2,700 feet above sea level, while uh, Capernaum, that's right here on the edge of the Sea of Galilee is actually 580 feet below sea level. So there's quite a difference in the, again, the depth of, uh, you know, where Jesus is right now in Capernaum and where he's going to go here in verse 13 to uh, Jerusalem. Again, I just want to point that out because, you know, the Bible says there that uh, he goes uh, up to Jerusalem and, of course, when he's making this trip from Capernaum to uh, Jerusalem, right? He, he's physically he's going south, but he's he's going up in steps, right? Because he's going up a, a mountainous region, and so we just always want to make, pay attention to those details that uh, that the gospel writers give to us. So let's let's jump into verses thirteen through twenty-five, uh, the, the second half of John chapter two, and we'll notice here. Uh, of a very, uh, again, another uh, familiar account of Jesus' life uh, where he cleanses the temple. So again, John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man." Okay, so uh, as we mentioned, Jesus has left Capernaum. He's coming down to Jerusalem for the, the Passover. You know, this is one of three, uh, you know, big Jewish uh, festivals where uh, the men were required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this. And as he comes into Jerusalem, uh, he, he comes to the temple. And hopefully these pictures work out. Okay, but here, here's sort of a replica of what uh, the, uh, the temple of Jesus' day would, would look like. And again, these, these were in the, in the packets. But uh, this outer court right here that you see sort of on the outside of the walls, this is uh, what is referred to as the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles, you know, anyone could visit this part of the temple complex. Uh, it didn't matter if you were a Jew or Gentile, man or woman, uh, you could be in this, uh, this, this area. And it was specifically for the Gentiles so that they would have an opportunity if they wanted to pray, if they wanted to um, offer sacrifices. This is where they did that. Uh, within uh, the, the court of the Gentiles, you have this first section of the temple complex, and this is referred to as the court of women. And so within this uh, part of the temple were only Jewish men and women allowed to come in, uh, again, in, in this section right here. And this is, what, this is where the, uh, oh, the, the money, uh, you know, what we'd refer to as like the money plates, but they'd have these uh, giant um, structures where people could place the money in. That was here in the court of women. And then, of course, with into the next section, which would have been this uh, complex, was, uh, I believe it's referred to as the court of Israel, but only Jewish men were allowed into that. And then to go even further, to go into uh, the most holy place, you know, you had to be a priest. And then within the most holy place is the, the holy of holies. And that's where the high priest went once a year to offer uh, the sacrifice for all the people. There was another picture but this one might have been a little bit more uh, blurry. But again, you, you get the, the basic concept that you got the, the court of the Gentiles uh, and then the court of women and the court of Israel, which includes the altar and then the holy place uh, within there. So what's significant for us uh, in John chapter 2 is that when Jesus comes to the temple complex, when he enters into that that sort of that first realm, the, the court of the Gentiles, uh, there's some things in there that shouldn't be in there, right? There, there's people in there uh, with their livestock. There's uh, these men who have these tables and their ex, uh, ex, money exchangers, we're told. And so Jesus is very upset about this. He, he's very upset about this. Uh, let's quickly talk about why this was there. Uh, 
What do you th- why do you think the, uh, the, the animals were in uh, this part of the temple complex? Okay, yeah, so uh, when the men come down to Jerusalem, especially people like Jesus, right? Jesus is traveling uh, a long distance, you know, from Capernaum all the way to Jerusalem. It's probably not that easy to travel with some sort of a, uh, a sacrifice, uh, whether, you know, you, you want to bring uh, the oxen or, or the doves or whatever. And so um, they have the opportunity to purchase those uh, at, at the temple complex, right? Now, there's nothing wrong in that in and of itself, but what's wrong is where they're doing it at. You know, they're doing it in God's house, in the temple. Uh, if they would have just, you know, maybe have gone somewhere outside of the temple or maybe at a stockyard or something to do this uh, buying and selling uh, of these animals, that would have been fine. But they were doing it in God's house. And of course, again, Jesus was quite upset about that. Uh, the, the money changers, right? Um, another part of the law was when uh, they came to Jerusalem to partake in this festival, uh, that there was a, uh, a temple tax that the, the men would have to pay. And of course, they're coming from all these different regions of Palestine. And you know, maybe some of them are using a different sort of currency uh, than others, and so they come to this money table where they can exchange. You know, maybe you have a coin and it's got Caesar's imprint on it. You know, a Roman coin or something like that. Well, the Jews, they of course they they wouldn't want to take that money uh, because it's you know and dedicate that to God. Uh, it's got Caesar's face on it. Uh, he's uh, the Roman Caesar, and so uh, they would have these tables set up where they would exchange uh, money. Now, of course, do you think they were doing this for free? No, they're, they're not doing this for free. They're, they're, they're going to put a little bit of a charge on this, right? You know, if you've got like a thousand pennies, you know, you can go to those machines, I think like at the entrance of Walmart and dump the thousand pennies in there, uh, you know, and to get cash for that. But you're going to be charged a small fee for doing that, right? And so that's exactly what's going on here as well. Uh, people are making money in the temple, and of course, Jesus is upset with this. Uh, so what does he do? What actions does Jesus do? Okay, yes. Uh, verse 15 is a verse that, um, that a lot of people, again, like to go to because it says that he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple uh, with the sheep and the auction. And then he poured out the coins on the money changers and overturned their tables. You know, have you ever, you ever seen, uh, you know, um, I think there's like a, a meme sometimes that floats around that talks about, you know, you know, if someone asks, you know, what would Jesus do? Uh, that, and then it'll say at the bottom, remind them that turning over tables and breaking out whips is a possibility. And a lot of times if you see uh, pictures of this depicted, of this scene happening, you know, Jesus has got this, this, you know, this scourge, a scourge of cords, this, this smaller whip in his hand. And the pictures that they're depicting of Jesus is they're, they're, the animals aren't even around. It's as if he's whipping you know, the, the people that, that are doing this. And that just doesn't you know, mesh with what we know of Jesus and his nature. 
uh, he built this the scourge of cords and, and likely you know he drove out the animals with it uh, but because of his you know his righteous indignation uh, at that moment it, you know it probably scared um, you know those people to flee as well so he drives them out he tells them stop making my father's house a place of business uh, you know this by the way, this isn't the only time that Jesus is going to cleanse the temple. He's going to do this as well uh, the last week of his life. When he comes into Jerusalem uh, during that last week, it's one of the first things he does is he goes back to the temple. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about this. Uh, he goes back to the temple and he cleanses it again because they're back in there selling uh, animals. They're, um, they're back there exchanging money. They're walking through the temple complex to get from one side to the other, just using it as an ordinary um, uh, piece of land instead of you know, this holy place uh, of, uh, where God's people come to, to worship and to sacrifice. And so you know, this is one of these accounts that you know, we would, or the world would probably refer to as controversial, uh, that, he's, that he builds this, this scourge of cords and he's driving people out. Uh, he's upset. He's, you know, saying, stop making my father's house a place of business. Again, you know, we've often uh, talked about how, you know, anger is not wrong. It's not sinful, but it, it, it is when it leads us to, uh, you know, do sinful things. Because, of course, we see here is an example of where Jesus got angry. He, he was upset. Uh, but again, this is an example of righteous indignation. Uh, he is cleansing uh, the temple, his father's house, of all this wrongdoing. Uh, you remember in the, the, uh, the accounts, when he goes a second time, he tells them uh, that, that they made a robber's den out of you know, his father's house. And so uh, we notice again that um, he... His disciples remembered, verse 17 tells us that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Right? He has a zeal for his father's house. And again, we don't have time to you know, talk about that, but that's a great lesson application for us is do we have zeal for our father's house as well? Now, of course, the, 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 our father's house is the church. It's not a physical structure, but it's you know, the people. And so... Um, do we have a zeal for that as well? And so Jesus, they, they want to know by what authority uh, you're doing this, Jesus. And he quickly, he, he tells them that, you know, uh, I'm going to destroy this or that this temple will be destroyed and I'll build it back in three days. And of course, they think he's talking about the physical temple, but of course, he's talking about his body. And so we'll pick up here uh, next week on Wednesday evening and just kind of touch and finish up uh, this section. And then we'll move right into John chapter three with uh, Nicodemus. So uh, thank you for your attention this evening.